Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. G'day. This week's episode is one of the more intriguing guests I've had on The Blank Canvas. Ant Middleton joined the Army in the UK at age 16. He earned the position of a point man and lead scout, as well as a primary fires operator and sniper, eventually achieving the holy trinity of the UK's elite forces, the Marines, Nine Parachute Squadron and Special Boat Service, and seeing plenty of action with three tours in Afghanistan. As with many high achievers, whether elite athletes or soldiers, life after the strict discipline and adrenaline-charged action can be rather challenging. After leaving the military, Ant's fall from grace was swift and he wound up at rock bottom in prison. This led to a major re-evaluation of his life, his friends, goals and purposes. Ant set out to build a new career in life that his wife Emily and his kids could be proud of. Here we are a decade later and Anne has become a much-loved master of survival and endurance in the fields of television, publishing and motivational speaking. Anne has delivered five seasons as chief instructor on UK hit TV series SAS Who Dares Wins and is now shooting the second season of the franchise series SAS Australia. Ant has written a trilogy of memoirs about his time in the military, First Man In, the fear bubble and zero negativity, delivering three UK Sunday Times number one bestsellers with more than one and a half million copies sold. 2017 saw Ant front Mutiny for Channel 4 in the UK, a show that reenacted Captain William Bly's brutal voyage following his cruise Mutiny, commonly known as the Mutiny on the Bounty. 2019 saw him conquer one of the biggest feats known to man, climbing Mount Everest, and making a hit documentary about the experience, Extreme Everest. Ant's most recent expedition saw him take Rebel Wilson on a thrill-seeking road trip through Mexico to get to know the real Rebel in his new series, Straight Talking. Back on the literary front, Ant's debut fiction thriller, Cold Justice, will be published in a couple of weeks in October 2021. Oh, and if that's not enough, there's the live speaking tour, Mind Over Muscle, which has been selling out across the UK and is now coming to Australia and New Zealand in early 2022. Clearly, we're talking a Renaissance man with a ferocious appetite for adventure. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Ant Middleton. Good morning, Ant. Good morning. How are you, Lee? I'm very well. Where are you this morning? So I am in sunny Sydney. I'm in quarantine. So I've got, I think I'm day three or day four into quarantine at the moment. So I've got another 10 days and then I'm out to film a new series of SAS Australia. But the main focus is on Monday the 13th at 7.30 on Channel 7. We have the current series with all the big characters that is coming out. That's uh 
think you've been the talk of the town over here in Australia. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's very exciting, mate. How do you do quarantine? A sort of active, outdoorsy bloke like you. Have you got a bike or you got a running machine or weights or something in there? So I've got kettlebells. I've got a rowing machine. I've got weights. Basically, my room looks like a gym. You know, like one of them old sweaty gyms where no one puts the weights away. Just imagine that and then uh, that will be my room with a bed next door. So uh, I'm, I'm happy as Larry. I get to train twice a day. I get to drink my coffee when I want to drink it. I get to work. So, yeah, I like to get into a routine when I'm in quarantine because I'm a professional quarantiner now. This is my third quarantine in Australia. So uh, I'm used to it by now, Lee. But um I've got five children at home, you know, I've got a very hectic lifestyle. So people are like, how are you dealing with quarantine? And I'm like, I'm dealing with it very well. Thank you very much. I'm I'm happy. Leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's classic. Let's backtrack a little bit. As I was reading your book, First Man In, which by the way, I loved, it brought back a lot of memories. I was never in the army, but I went to a military style high school. And for six years, we had military cadets. You had to join the Army, Navy or the Air Force. I joined the Army. Why? I'm not sure because we had to wear a kilt. I mean, I travelled from one end of Sydney to the other for six years, you know, on one day a week in the kilt. I could probably spend the whole episode <laughs> talking about my adventures. Come on, Lee, in- don't lie. Is it because <laughs> you wanted to wear the kilt? <laughs> The question is, what did you wear under the kilt? Oh, <laughs> I, I, okay. You are. So I'll give you a quick um, adventure on that one. I was about 12, I think, and it was the start of the new year and they hadn't issued the concession passes for public transport. And I'm heading home. It's like late Friday afternoon. I've got the kilt on and I'm down at Circular Quay in Sydney and I'm like, they won't let me on. There's no mobile phones. I've got no money. And I'm trying yeah. to get to Manly, the other end of Sydney. And eventually I go, oh, look, can I speak to your supervisor or something? And, you know, he grumbles and groans, goes over, grabs the superintendent, I think he was called. He comes over, he says, nah. He looks me up and down and he says, all right, tell you what, if you show me what you got underneath your kilt, I'll let you through. (laughs) (laughs) And I've just gone, oh, yeah, you know, flashed under my kilt and, you know, he's let me through and I'm like stoked. I've gone home and I've told mum and dad, dad's like, where's this bastard and, you know, come on, get in the car. <laughs> he wants to get in the car and, you know, drive down and find this bloke and give him a surf. So there you go. <laughs> I think back then, you know, it, it was one of those, but nowadays, car, that, that would be a completely different ball game, right? Absolutely. Now, the reason for telling you about that is I was reading the book, it was bringing back memories of me as a young cadet and like the first time, I think I'm 11 or 12 going out on the first kind of three-day bivouac and it's winter, probably the first time away from home on my own. We're in the snowy mountain somewhere. It pissed down with rain for three days straight. I remember I was so wet and I was so soggy and I couldn't even get the, the, the hutchie or hutch or I can't even remember what I called it. Was it the hutchie, the little single tent? <laughs> <laughs> it's a poncho. poncho. We call it a poncho. Oh, yeah, we call we it don't, something. We don't, we don't have a tent. It's like a, all it is is a sheet, yeah. basically, a sheet that That's protects you from, ex- from the elements. Exactly. So I, all I did was just wrap myself around it like a sausage roll in there as the rain just beat down on me all night. I cried all night. I thought it was just the worst thing ever. And I'm just wondering, you, you know, everyone has a moment like that. How is it that you kind of went, oh, I love this and, you know, I want to do this for the rest of my life and you went off and, you know, joined the Army and became 
an elite soldier, no doubt putting yourself through a, a lot of pain and a lot of those kind of scenarios. So do you remember that moment? Yeah, I do. I, you know, and I, it's like you, Lee, I, I hated every single moment of it. I remember when I joined the army, I initially joined back end of 97, beginning of 98. I joined because, you know, I was a self-sufficient young man. I was 16. I wanted to stand on my own two feet. I wanted my own money. I wanted just to be self-sufficient. So, I, you know, I gave it a whim. I thought, you know what? I joined the army because I'll have a roof over my head. I'll get a small pay packet every month. Um, I think it was something like £230 I was getting a month back in 97, 98. And, yeah, they feed me. And, uh, you know, it's a good challenge. I can I do a few assault courses. And then, lo and behold, the exercises come up, you know, and you are exactly how you described it. You know, you're this youngster. It's absolutely pissing down with rain. You're soaked to the bone. You know, you're on exercise for three to five days initially, you know, and it works its way up to two weeks. and it's miserable. You're on sentry, you're cold, you're wet, you're falling asleep, you're getting, you know, beasted by the instructors uh, because you're meant to stay awake, they're creeping up on you. And when it's your time for sentry, you know, you get the old push, the older guy, like, oh, you're on in five minutes and you're like, you know, you try and <laughs> pretend you're asleep and pull the sleeping bag over your head and there's no getting out of it. And you think to yourself, this is, this is rubbish, you know, I don't, I'm not really enjoying it. Then you get through it. You get through those hardships. You get through those tough times. You get through the cold. You get through the miserable parts. And you you feel a sense of achievement. You think to yourself, do you know what? I've, God, I didn't think I could do that, but I've done it. And then, you know, it pushes you on to the next stage and it comes up again. And you're like, oh, good Lord, here we go again. I've got to do it again, but for even longer. And again, you know, you learn to expose yourself and you learn to get through it. And it makes you a stronger person. It, it builds resilience. So I started building resilience from a very, very young age and I got used to it, I suppose. I never really used to like going on exercise, but I got used to it. And I never really got the point until I went into combat where it all sort of came into fruition, where everything sort of made sense. But um, it does, it builds discipline. You know, getting up in the middle of the night when you're wet and cold, going on sentry, looking after your pals, making sure that their backs are covered and that they're safe sleeping whilst we're, we're in you know, hostile terrain or hostile environment. Uh, it gives you that sense of achievement. And I suppose what really drove me on as a youngster is I always wanted to help people. You know, it would always be rather me than them. And that's what really, really spurred me on my uh, younger years of the military is wanting to help other people. I've always wanted to help other people. And lo and behold, you know, I'm doing that to a much sort of greater extent and a greater responsibility now. But you know, I went into the army with a thing of let's see how it goes. And I just happened to be good at my job. I happened to to enjoy it. I happened to learn a lot. And I happened to climb the ladder in the way that ultimately I ended up in the special forces. So, uh, but it's that sticking. You've got to stick with it. You know, it, times are shit. Times are tough. Hardship and suffering is everyday part of life. It's not going anywhere. You know, I can walk out this door and I can see it. You know, I could be on the phone and hear it. It's not going anywhere. And the moment you learn how to acknowledge that and go, do you know what? I'm going to suck it up right now and get through it, knowing that when you get out the other end, you will become a better person no matter what. So um, I grasped that from a young age and, uh, and I use it even now in my life. That's cool, mate. Thanks for sharing that. The other thing that struck me from reading your book was you were a sweet kid. 
from what I read, exactly you weren't that, mate. I was, yeah. yeah, you weren't particularly troubled. So I can see that it has come from a um, a purpose of wanting to help, wanting to make a difference, and all the rest of it. Tell me the, I guess, from when you first got into the military to eventually, you know, special forces, three tours of Afghanistan. How the hell did you get through that for a start and then be sort of coming out the other side and heading back into life as a civilian? That must have been an incredible challenge. So the sort of the three stages as a wide-eyed kid and going, wow, you know, I'd like to be a part of this team and help people and help my country and help my pals, to then the intensity of Afghanistan and then on coming out the other side. I know that's sort of three different questions, but... Yeah, no, I've got them clear in my head, Lee. Um, so I, I lived in France from the ages of about nine till 16, late 16, early 17, when I joined the military. And I was completely different. I was, I had the French culture about me. You know, I'd be bowling at 15, 16, um, you know, drinking coffee um, in a really remote part of France, North France, you know, lands, acres and acres of land to play in. Um, you know, I'd sleep in my den for two, three days at a time in, in the woods opposite the fields, approximately, you know, a kilometre away from my house. Um, that's how remote it was. So the biggest shock I had was joining the British Army. And it was a culture shock of this male dominant organisation. And I'm talking male dominant in a way where drinking and fighting was at the forefront of becoming a good soldier. You know, um, back in 97, 98, until I would say, you know, 2003, 2004, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, there were a lot of pub soldiers, you know, I think a lot of pub soldiers from the Falklands because nothing happened from the Falklands onwards. And if you were down in the pub drinking and fighting, then you were a good soldier. And, you know, and ultimately when you went out on exercise, you, you were playing soldiers. You know, it's like walking around, you've got a blank firing device on your weapon, you know, it's, you know, yeah, it all serves a purpose, but there were a lot of pub soldiers in that era. So you can imagine when I came over and I passed out of training, best recruit, best PT, I was this very polite, well-spoken young man. And I had to turn into uh, a hardened survivalist very, very quickly. You know, if, if I wasn't out in the pub drinking with the boys and people would come back and tip you out of your bed and wreck your room and give you a bit of a kick in until you did go out, you know, with the lads. And you know, if you weren't fighting, then you weren't a soldier. And I lost myself for a bit. I lost myself for a few years, um, all the way through to when I joined the Marines. When I joined the Army, I passed out of training, done P Company, became a para-engineer. Um, so I had my maroon beret, my parachute wings, you know, I was more of airborne than the airborne. And then, um, yeah, I lost myself. I became this person that I didn't recognise and that's what forced me to leave the army. I left the army in 2002, 2003, and then, you know, had a go at Civvy Street, which uh, didn't, it didn't perspire the way that I wanted to, or it didn't, um, you know, it didn't manifest into the vision that I had. And I thought to myself, why, why did I leave the military? You know, it's, I loved the military. I loved what I'd done. I just didn't enjoy that, the people around me. So I thought, you know what? I've done the airborne side of things. I've done the power side of things. Let's see what the Marines are like. Let's see what the commandos are like. And um, I joined the Royal Marine Commandos. I passed out with uh, the King's Bad, which is the best recruit and best PT. And again, I thought, oh, here we go again. I'm going to fall into this, you know, drinking culture, fighting culture. But it was different. 
you know, once you had that green beret on your head and you went to your unit, it was like you didn't have to prove anything. Um, and at that stage as well, when I passed out of training in 2005 and joined 40 Commando, people had already done a tour of Afghanistan. People had put their training to the test, shall we say. So that whole pub soldier culture just disappeared overnight. Um, sorry, that's the phone ringing. That's, uh, that's them checking up on me on quarantine to make sure that I'm, I'm still healthy and I'm still alive. Um, so that pub soldier sort of, um, yeah, persona disappeared overnight. And before you knew it, you, you were joining up in 2003, four, and five to, to go to Afghanistan. So it's very mature. You know, you were taking that face value for what you brought to the table rather than having to prove yourself time and time again by going downtown, drinking and fighting. And I excelled in the Marines. Within two years of being in the Marines, I'd done a tour of Sierra Leone in the short-term training team, teaching their troops sniping and advanced jungle warfare. And I'd done a tour of Afghanistan with 40 Commando on Op Herrick 7 in Sangin, D.C. And then... Um, I found myself on selection within two years of going to 40 Commando. I'd done Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, and I'd done the pre-aptitude test for selection, which I passed. And then um, January of 2008, I found myself on the Special Forces selection process, to which I passed six months later, so in the June. And then I found myself straight back out two weeks later for another six-month tour of Afghanistan with Sea Squadron from the Special Boat Service. So I literally done Afghanistan, back home in the December, January to June selection, past selection. And from July to December of 2008, I'd done a whole nother tour of Afghanistan. So I was away for a year and a half, completely out of sync with reality, just completely in that military, in elite headspace where nothing else mattered to me. You know, I had a family. I've still got my beautiful wife and children um, and, you know, I'm not ashamed to say it, but my head was in the special forces. You know, that was my priority. I had my priorities wrong because it should have been my wife and my children. But at the time, you think you've got your priorities right. You think, you know, I've got a married quarter. You know, my wage is coming in every month. They're, they're good as gold. Send me into Afghanistan. Send me in to do what I've trained all my life to do, and that's to go into combat. But that's what it takes to be a special forces operator. It takes that mindset, you know, the military must come first. And if you have any other distractions, then as I've seen in combat, you know, there's a lot of people that don't make it back. Absolutely. I found it really interesting the way you talked about in the book, how you broke it down from a very overwhelming situation, say knocking down a door of a house of the Taliban in Afghanistan and just the process that you went through mentally to, I guess, focus yourself and just bring it down to a very simple equation of prediction and what your move would be, would you mind, you know, for those that haven't read the book or had that kind of insight, would you mind just stepping us through, I know things slow down, it's very overwhelming, and then they slow down and it's almost like in slow motion for a moment, but would you give us an insight into that experience? Everything's a numbers game, Lee. Everything is a calculated risk. You know, there's only a few occasions that I've been reckless where I've had to be reckless because you know, it was literally life or death, but... Everything's a calculated risk and it depends on what you've been exposed to and your experience in life to how, how big a risk it is. And I used to break everything down. You know, as soon as I breached that compound, you know, that heightened sense of uh, awareness 
of hearing, of vision, of everything slows everything down it's like being in a car crash i suppose where you know you sort of see your life flash in front of you but when you do that on a constant basis and you, you repeat that process every couple of nights by kicking doors down you start to learn to to harness that feeling to make that moment work for you it's almost like being in a dream and knowing that you're in a dream so knowing that you can't get hurt, knowing that, you know, and it's almost like you, it's a free fall. It's very much like that. You know, at first it's overwhelming. <gasps> you just want to get through that moment. You would just want to get through it and do what you need to do. And then when you're out of it, it's like, Phew, thank God I'm out of it. But then you get next day kicking doors down again, that same feeling, that same feeling. And I say to people, you, you know, it's about exposing that feeling, exposure, exposure, and then repeating it, repetition, repetition exposure exposure repetition repetition so the more you expose it the more you're going to learn about it the more you repeat it the better you're going to get at it and that's exactly the same with your feelings it's exactly the same with your emotions um, apart from we don't do that we do it once in our lives and we go Oof, you know that scared the living daylights at me i'm not revisiting that again so once i learned to harness this feeling it became euphoric uh, i wasn't chasing adrenaline i wasn't this adrenaline junkie which it's almost the purest form of life is so peaceful and it's so it's so calm and still that it becomes, I say, the purest form of life because you're either going to live or you're going to die. There's no bullshit in between. There's no complications in between. There's none of this. Uh, what about this? What about this? It's like it's the purest form of life. And once you learn to harness that, it's ultimate peace. You know, I used to chase that feeling of that's why I was point man. I wanted to get through that door. I wanted to feel those couple of seconds of just like, like being in the matrix as such. It's like bang. And it's like everything It's almost if I can calculate everything within a split second, bang, bang, and then boom, boom, you're back in the room, room clear, boom, good to go. Right. Where's that next feeling? Where's that next bubble? And, you know, stacking up against the door as well. Um, I talk about a numbers game, you know, we stack up against the door knowing that there's bad guys on the other side. You know, they might be firing bullets through the door and you just, you know, but again, you calculate it in your head, you know, just from the way that the enemy's firing the weapon. If he's on automatic and he's bursting it through the door, that tells me that he's panicking. The person's absolutely shitting themselves because they're wasting their ammunition. Now, they're either going to be out of ammunition very, very soon and I'll just wait and then enter the room or they're firing away and and they're hoping that you'll go away. And when, when you're on automatic, your weapon automatically lifts up, okay? And in order to stop that lift, you have to take your finger off the trigger, bring it back down and brrr, happens again. So I just wait for that pause and I'll enter. I'll enter the room. So I'm always calculating things on the ground. But also I think to myself, when I enter this room, what are the chances that he's going to fire that weapon and get a couple of rounds off? Yeah, the chances are quite high if I'm a split second too late or if I miscalculate it, which, you know, in my head I won't do. No, I don't allow that to ever enter my head. But I think if it does, they're probably going to get one or two bullets off max before I either finish the job or my power behind me has my back and, and does it. And what are the chances those one or two bullets are going to hit me in the head, are going to kill me? It's slim to none. You know, worst case scenario, it probably hit me in my chest plate. It might hit me in my leg. It's not going to kill me. So guess what? The odds are with me. So listen, I don't care if you've got a weapon on the other side of that door when you're firing. I'm coming in because I'm doing these calculations within these split seconds and boom, boom. I know just the way that I've been trained, the way I move, the way I think, 
that I'm always going to have to drop on people. And these are calculations that I make on the ground. And then they're never reckless. Like I say, I've made one or two where I've had to make a reckless decision in order to save life. And again, it's one of those as well. Where you think to yourself, if I go through this door and I catch one up in the head, I'm not going to know about it anyway. I'm going to be dead. So what, what are you worried about? <laughs> what, what am I worried about? And um, the most dangerous weapon, I suppose, that anyone can have is willing to give the ultimate sacrifice for the cause. You know, I was willing to give my life every single time, not only for the mission, but for my pals. And when you're willing to sacrifice at that level, then there's nothing that's going to stop you from, from either committing to the job or getting the job done. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Thanks for sharing that as well. It's a fascinating phenomenon because I know on the one hand, you're there and you want the mission to go successfully and you don't want anyone to lose their life. And no. you don't want to have to kill anyone on the other side either. You want to do this peacefully. But it's yeah. it, it's an intense job and some days that's going to happen and I'm, I'm sure you had to take some lives through the course of your job and I'm sure it was a pretty, you know, I'm sure you weren't bouncing back in the car going, woohoo, isn't this great? You'd be, it's pretty significant stuff. You'd be heading back to base going, this is hardcore, okay, yeah. we're okay. But it's just so many mixed emotions and hats off to people that have the guts to protect the rest of us that don't have the courage to do this. So, Do you know what, Lee, is a huge responsibility. And my primary role was point man and anyone's role in the military or serving in any, you know, armed services, security services, is to save life. That is our primary role. And a lot of people don't understand that. If I don't have to press that trigger, I won't press the trigger. And again, I break everything down in a way that I can manage it psychologically, that I can process it psychologically and come up with a solution. You know, when I was told, you know, my job is to save life and, you know, it's, it's not to not to take life. You take life when it's absolutely it's necessary and, and you have to. And only you can make that decision. No one can be in those shoes. That's, that's something that you have to live with. But um, I use this analogy and I broke it down. And, and this is the analogy that I used because I, I thought about taking life. And, you know, especially being point man, I knew that that was going to happen. And in my eyes, no one has the right to take life. You know, no one has the right to take anyone's life. You know, that's not your God-given right. However, if you think that you have the right to take someone's life, then I'm there to simply deny you that right. So whether you're the enemy, whether you're a hostage, whatever it may be, if you think you have the right to take life, then I'm going to deny you that right by saving someone's life. So ultimately, the only time I take life is to save life. And that's how I've processed it. You know, if you think you've got the right to take someone's life and I see you there just about to pull the trigger on my pal, I'm going to deny you that right in order to save life. So ultimately, it's come back around full circle. So every action of mine with this trigger finger is there to save a life. Gotcha. You know, so I never think of it as taking a life because that is a fucking hardcore thing to do. You know, to have that mindset, that that malice, that evil in you to take life and think you've got the right to take life. That's just pure evil. And that's not the person that I am. That's not, you know, what the majority of people, there are people out there like that. So don't get me wrong. 
that's the way I processed it. And it was never personal. It was never, ever personal. It was a case of, I don't care if you're the baddest dude on the earth. If I went into that room and you weren't a threat to me, then I'd capture you. I'd capture you and I'd take you back and I'd put you through the system and you'd be interrogated and we'd extract information out of you. I was never a bully with a weapon. And I can remember as well having that opportunity where I knew this guy had been firing upon us and he ran behind a doorway and um, he popped his head through the door with his weapon. And I knew it was him because I see him run into that door and he was just firing on my pal. And I had my laser on his head and everything and so must pull the trigger. He was just trying to kill you. But I didn't even have to think about it. My natural instinct was to take my finger off of the trigger and to go in and capture the guy, which I did. But I could have taken that shot. This is one thing that I do remember. My laser was on his head. His weapon was poised downwards. You know, it wasn't pointed at anyone. Even though it was a couple of seconds before, you know, a couple of seconds before, if I'd have got the drop, then this is fair game. But I can just remember. And it's something that played with me for a long time because I thought to myself, wow, just let a bad guy go. But then I sit here now, not haunted whatsoever with the lives that I've taken because ultimately I've taken them to save life. So uh, it's how you process things in life, Lee. It's how, it's how you break them down. It's how you deal with them that gets you through life. And that's with any given situation. You know, that's with anything in life. Break it down. Be honest with it. Be honest with yourself. And you'll always find a solution. Because the only people that hold the answers is you. Only you fucking know, hand on heart, if you're being honest with yourself. If that was the best thing to do, if it was the worst thing to do, yeah, okay, I might have a bit of blood on my hands. Fucking hell. You know, I've got to live for that now. And that's the responsibility that we sign up to. And that's the responsibility that we have to uh, uphold and that authority that we have to make sure that we don't abuse. And that's how deep it goes. It goes so fucking deep when you're dealing with lives that I don't expect anyone to understand unless they've been in my shoes. Fair enough, mate. Fair enough. After having put your, your life on the line and made the contribution you've made, uh, how do you feel with the recent events of the US withdrawal in Afghanistan and them leaving all the arms and things there? You know, again, it's easy for me to sit back and and comment but i've been out for 10 years now lee you know i've passed on that torch you know i'm not saying it's no longer my responsibility and i'm what you know but i'm not in the hot seat anymore i'm not in the driving seat there's nothing i can do right now that torch has well and truly been passed on but from what i'm seeing in afghanistan it's bad leadership you know what the fuck are people thinking about but that's the way the world has gone. The world has gone so crazy that no one knows what's going on. <laughs> people are confused. People are worried. People are concerned. It's a crazy, crazy world out there at the moment. And all I try and do right now is, you know, I've done my bit. I just try and do me. I try and do my family. I try and help people out where I can with my work, with my books, with my programs. Every, everything that I do, everything from my tours to my books to my TV programs, I think who just think I'm this, you know, shouting drill sergeant. Everything has a message behind it. Okay. And the message is about oneself. It's about realizing, you know, your potential, facing your fears, being honest with yourself, and ultimately becoming a better version of who you are. 
And that's all I look at now. I look at doing that and whether it's in a cop, people class it as a controversial way or, or tough love, you know, I'm just honest with what I do. Um, honesty will get you to the solution a lot quicker and a lot more effectively um, rather than tiptoeing around and um, fitting into some kind of agenda or, or fad that is current. Um, I'm not that type of person. Everything I preach or do comes from within from what I feel is right it might not be right for you it might resonate you might take something from it if you do great I'll carry on with what I'm doing if it doesn't then you know I'm not asking you to read my books I'm not asking you to watch my tv programs but I'm obsessed with I am obsessed with bettering people I get frustrated when I see people that have got so much potential it frustrates me because I used to be that young boy that young lost kid off the streets that ugh, didn't believe in myself. I knew it was in there, but you know, I, I was scared of what other people would think, scared what other people would say. And, and the one thing I have found out is if you want to push through into greatness, if you want to, if you want to break that barrier, if you want to elevate yourself to the next level, then you've just got to do you. You know, you've got to be prepared for people to try and drag you down you've got to be prepared for people to not understand you you've got to be prepared to to you know be questioned on a daily basis you've got to be prepared to be called all sorts you know whether it's controversial whether it's a bully whatever it may be but at the end of the day only you know if you're a good man and only you know if everything that you do comes from a pure heart and my heart is full and it's pure, and I know that. And it takes a certain individual to, to get to that level. Mate, you're a bloody good writer. Did that just come out of nowhere, or were you a journal writer, or how did it come about? I mean, you've had three bestsellers, and you've you've now got a fiction thriller coming. I mean, I remember, yeah. I, remember I made a movie, and I remember talking to my mum going, hey, mum, I'm going to make a movie. And she's like, but you haven't been to university. You haven't learned how to write. You haven't learned how to, you know, be a filmmaker or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I, I just got a feeling like I can do it. So I went out and did it and made a movie and it went all over the world. We ended up at the Cannes Film Festival and it was this bizarre scenario where I kind of went, you know what, don't limit yourself. If you've got a dream, have a crack and go for it. And clearly you've done the same thing. But tell me, was there a gift you were aware of or did you just make it up as you went along? Uh, let me just correct you on that. The three number one bestsellers, Lee, not just bestsellers. Sorry, I had to get that in there. <laughs> I stand corrected, sir. <laughs> um, do you know what, Lee? I've always wanted to write a book from a young age. You know, from a young age when my father passed away when I was five years old and we up and moved to France, uh, you know, I went to a Catholic school, learnt the language within three months because I was the only English kid at the school. And then leaving France and joining the army, I probably was about 22, 23, just as I left the army and I went to join the Marines. You know, I just sat back and reflected and I thought, wow, the life experience that I've got you know, I'd love to write a book one day. I think, you know, I think people might be interested and I think it might help a lot of people. And then, you know, obviously joined the Marines and then the Special Forces and my three tours of Afghanistan and then leaving the military and, you know, finding myself in trouble and serving a couple of months in prison for a violent offence that took place and then getting into TV and then, you know, always reverting back to who I am, that person that wants to help people. 
but having, you know, yeah, made a few hiccups along the way, um, fought my way through life, never gave up, but always believed. I always believed and I always had this positive way of, of dealing with anything that was in front of me. And when I, yeah, when I left and the opportunity came up, you know, I'd done for the first series of SS Who Dares Wins and, and people were like, oh, you should do a book about, you know, about military, about going to war. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you know, there's way more to it than that. And that's how we came up with the first format, First Man In. Now, if you look at First Man In, it's not your typical, your typical memoir. It's not a memoir where it goes on about, you know, it's key parts of my life, and then a chapter of lessons, you know, or a page of lessons that were identified. And it was the first sort of format of its kind within the memoir space. And it was a big risk. People were like, well, I don't know if it's going to work. People just want to hear your war stories. And I'm like, no, no, no. Listen, that will sort of feed into one field. You know, my military fanatics, and that's about it. I said, I want to help people. I said, there's way more to me than being a soldier. You know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm, you know, I've, I've been inside prison, I've dealt with loss, I've dealt with um, so much in my life that well, I want people to be able to relate to that, not just look at me as this warmongering individual that they see from the telly. And I can remember sitting down with my publisher and I said to him, I said, I said what's a good number? I said, what if I sell 100,000 books? And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he went, he went, he listened, right? He said, that's the gold standard. He said, in the UK, that's the double gold standard. He said, look, don't set your heights that high. He said, look, if you sell 30,000 books, he said, we'd do a second one for sure. He said, because, you know, that's good revenue, blah, blah, blah. Within two weeks, I sold 40,000 books. My book went straight to number one. It was number one for five weeks. I think within that five weeks, I'd sold over 100,000. And to date, all formats, ebooks, hardbacks, softbacks. I've sold just under a million copies of First Man in. And that's the UK, right? So my publishers were just like, wow. So obviously along came the second book deal, exactly the same. It was like, right, what do you want to hit on? I said, fear. So I'd done a talking tour about fear. I said, I need to get the message out about fear, especially whilst people are hot on First Man in. Let me get this one out about fear. Fear bubble came out. Bang. Next thing I know, number one again, it's in schools. You know, it's in universities. And then the third book deal, I'm like, listen, all of this incorporates is wrapped up by positivity. I said, because I've always believed, I've always had that positive outlook on life, no matter what negativity has been thrown at me. And, you know, that's what I've grasped hold of, the negativity, in order to, to find a positive solution. Because without negativity, there is no positivity. They don't get happiness and positivity mixed up. Happiness is the feeling that you get if I give you a present. Oh, it makes you happy doesn't mean that you're positive it just it's just happy you know in order to have positivity you've got to flip a negative into a positive and that's what the beauty of positivity is is that you've fucking worked hard to get it you know you've been willing to challenge negativity you've been willing to go into the depth into the core of that problem in order to find a little glimmer of hope or a little little ounce of positivity to, to blossom to nurture to grow that's what positivity was all about it's that sense of achievement and reward and that's where zero negativity came out of you know zero negativity isn't a case of ignore negativity and cut it out of your life completely there are some negative things that you need to cut out of your life once you've exhausted all options but zero negativity is about having a zero negative outcome you know, by challenging negativity and flipping it into a positive and having a zero negative outcome. And you can do that, but you just have to be willing enough to go to the depths, which a lot of people aren't. You know, they're not willing to challenge negativity. They're not willing to, to go near it. They're scared of it. 
so zero negativity again when that came out that flew to number one as well so i've got a trilogy of books at the moment that are number one so you know the emphasis is on my new fiction book you know it's a new space for me it's uh, called cold justice it's about a character called mallory you know it's not your old school sort of classic you know sas fiction book where this old school guy goes around killing everyone and you know it's, it's very fresh it's very new it's almost this new school sort of sf guy he's a bit of a hipster you know he's a bit of a character he's got a civilian life outside of his military life you know his civilian you know life yeah it might deal with the underworld a bit he doesn't get involved in it but he's just friends with with the underworld with gangs etc etc but never involved there's always been that line of respect but it just happens to have friends within that organization so he's connected to the two worlds and it takes them all over the world which um the locations that i talk about in cold justice um i've been I've been to these locations. I know how the, the system works. I know how to get around the system. I know how to play the system. I know how corrupt the system is in certain countries. And it just makes for an interesting read. But Mallory and the locations in the book are pretty much an exaggerated life of who I am. And when I say exaggerated, I mean, you know, obviously there's some scenes where, where you go, oh, you know, that is obviously fiction. And there's some scenes where you would think it was fiction but it's not you know where Mallory finds himself in these sticky situations with government officials and stuff like that you know they're the the uh the, the non-fiction that I can put into, into my <laughs> fiction book shall we say but um, Mallory isn't going anywhere Mallory has a sequel as well I'm just writing the second book as we speak so um yeah but um, Cold Justice um is out on the 12th of October in the UK and um, yeah, again, I'm just hoping that people can, I've got a message in there. My sort of saying for the new book is everyone has a piece of Mallory in them. <laughs> you know, you just have to acknowledge it and accept it because we all do, mate. We all do. And I'm sure you do as well, Lee. I reckon you're right. Well, I'm sure there was plenty of things that went down that you couldn't put in the memoirs and the fiction book is an opportunity to... Uh, take a bit of creative license, isn't it, and, <laughs> and paint some of those characters that you came across that you couldn't name names and go, okay, he'll know he, who he is <laughs> and you can get away yeah, with it. Yeah, no, no, but also there's always stuff, you know, I'd never breach that. There's always stuff that I take to the grave. There's stuff that I have to live with as an individual and as someone that holds himself accountable. And there's always stuff that I would always stay locked up that will be deep six with me one day in the soil. Fair enough, mate. Nothing that haunts me, shall we say, but there's stuff that, you know, if it, if it hasn't got a positive sort of, if you can't dig into my stories and find some kind of positive in there, then what's the point in telling it? It's a good thing, mate. Hey, um, we're going to wrap up real soon, but just tell me about your tours. Like, I mean, I know you do these speaking tours. Obviously, the books are standalone pieces. What can audiences expect with the tour? And the tour, people just want to know about me, you know, about my childhood, how I grew up why I joined the military, you know, what it takes to become a special forces operator, the mindset that I adapted, um, the situations that I was in in Afghanistan, how I dealt with them and um, how I dealt with my inner self. Now, I say everything starts with you as an individual. You know, you need to be able to lead yourself in order to lead a team. You need to be able to try and be the best version of you in order to get the best version of someone else out. You know, people try and do it the other way around their house whether it's up here or you know is in order but yet they think they can lead a team they think they can take on the world and they've got it all wrong they get carried away with the external when you need to be obsessed with the internal and i talk about how i do that 
how I get the best out of myself, out of my children, out of people around me and how I top that up by surrounding myself with like-minded and positive people. And also, you know, bad things, hardship, suffering, um, negativity, you know, these are all dirty words. Well, guess what? They're not. They're the fucking words or they're the things that will make you as an individual that will build resilience, will give you a better and a greater understanding of what you're capable of, where your potentials lie. And um, ultimately, that's what will either push you to to the levels you need to be at or or beyond. Sounds good, mate. I look forward to seeing you in action. And um, look, let's wrap up on something else that I loved. It was your dedication to your wife in First Man In. I was really moved by that. Tell us how much your wife means to you and clearly she helped get you back on track at, at a crucial time there. Uh, no, I just wanted some brownie points, so I thought I'd put no, 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 no. <laughs> um, yeah, without sounding corny and without sounding cliche, shall we say, when I met my wife, that was it. You know, uh, I think, I don't want to sound it, love is, is the key. You know, everyone is in search, wants to be loved. You know, everyone wants to find love and, you know, people go through their whole lives without finding it. But once you've found it and you no longer have to concentrate on that and no longer becomes a distraction or the priority that allows you to fully focus on other things. And what Emily made me do is once I found love, I knew it was reciprocated and we got married. And then that chapter in my life that everyone searches for was complete. So it freed me up to really concentrate on myself, to really concentrate on my work, you know, not having that distraction of, oh, I'm lonely. Oh, I could always fall back. Whether I got it wrong, even if I fucked up and I got it wrong, I know my wife, just the love of my wife always settled me. It always calmed me down. It always leveled me, knowing that I don't care if I get it right or wrong. I've got my wife there. I've got that love there. And it allows you to be the person you want to be because love is a huge distraction. I would say love is the biggest distraction. You know, people that aren't truly in love and people that are, you'll see a huge difference in the individual because um, they're no longer looking for love. They're no longer looking for that need for that hole to be filled, shall we say. So um, when I met my wife, just the belief, self-belief and you know, she pushed me as much as I pushed myself. She's like, go out and do it. You know you can do it. I've seen you do it. You're capable of doing it. Knowing that if I didn't do it, it didn't matter because I'd fall back into my wife's arms and she'd push me back out there. Do you know what I mean? So that is the ultimate teamwork. Your partner, your loved one, your wife, whatever it may be, that is the key to success. Because once you found that, then boom, the world's your oyster. You can just crack on. So I do owe it all to my wife because before I met my wife, people drag you down. People don't like a smart ass. People don't like, you know, someone that's good at everything, you know, and I was one of them annoying kids that happened to be good at everything, but I was dragged down for it. And then when I met Emily, you know, nothing else mattered. You know, when you've got someone like that by your side, then you sort of feel invincible. You feel unstoppable. And she's the one common denominator that's always been there, whether... I've had a hard time in the military burying friends, whether I've been to prison, I'm coming out. You know, she's always, always been there. And if anything, I owe it to her now to succeed. Then I've got my children now that give me my purpose in life. There's nothing materialistic that gives me purpose in life. I like to have nice things, don't get me wrong, but that's not my main prerogative and it's not my main focus in life. 
so yeah those words I mean every single word of them and uh, without her in my life I wouldn't be where I am so yeah um, she continued to push me and, and I'll continue to be a better man that's beautiful mate thanks for sharing your story today you're a good man your work is appreciated keep going thanks mate listen it's been a pleasure thanks for having me I'm Lee Rogers, and you've been listening to my conversation with Ant Middleton. An hour is hardly enough with a bloke like this who's led such an adventurous life. Certainly makes me want to launch myself out of my comfort zone more often. I'm really looking forward to Ant's speaking tour, Mind Over Muscle. It kicks off in Sydney in January 2022 and then all around the country. Tickets are available via tegdainty.com. That's teg, T-E-G, dainty, D-A-I-N-T-Y.com. And if you want to order Ant's new non-fiction thriller, Cold Justice, and actually for all things Ant, head to his website, antmiddleton.com. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review. I know I always bang on about this at the end of an episode, but it really does make a difference with the analytics and popularity of the podcast and getting more people to hear it. So head to Apple Podcast, give us a review, give us a rating, and, you know, whatever platform you're on, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And share the blank canvas with a friend. Until next week, live large. Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production. <laughs>